Miracy. And it was an extremely traumatic situation. I mean, I joke about it a little bit here, but it was really soul-sucking and scary, downright scary. And I thought, my God, I've been grinding it out for all these years only to find out that I almost died and left my family. And, you know, for what? I'm Sharon Richmond, and this is To Lead as Human. For more than 30 years, I've run a business called Leading Large. I help C-level executives expand their impact clarify their priorities, energize their organizations, and build cultures of accountability and respect. In this podcast, we help you envision how to supercharge your leadership by introducing you to executives who lead with intention. These top business leaders exemplify the principles of leading large. They know that as leaders, the positional power they get comes with an equal measure of personal responsibility. These leaders not only deliver stellar value to their customers, clients, and stakeholders, they also prioritize building organizations that provide purpose, meaning, and a healthy environment for their employees. We learn from the challenges and successes they've experienced on their human journey. With me today is Andy Levitt. Andy's a seasoned, mission-driven entrepreneur and executive who has led the startup growth and sale of two significant companies. Most notably, he was the founder and CEO of Purple Carrot, what a great name for a company, the first and only 100% plant-based meal kit company. In the span of less than five years, Andy scaled Purple Carrot to become an eight-figure nationwide brand with celebrity partners such as Tom Brady and corporate partners such as Con Agra. After selling Purple Carrot in 2019 and then leaving as CEO last year, 2022, Andy has started his newest venture, Brightly, which has a mission at the intersection of climate change and food waste. So we'll definitely get to that later. Andy earned his MBA from the Stern School of Business at New York University, and he lives near Boston. Welcome to the show, Andy. I really appreciate this chance to talk with you about your leadership journey. Hi, Sharon. It's great to be here with you. Thanks for having me on the show. So I guess let's start back before Purple Carrot. I'm curious, what prompted you to go from a decade in corporate leadership to starting your own company, Health Talker? I think that was your first business venture. That's right. I have always had an entrepreneurial spirit since I was a little kid. When I was 11 years old, I tried to write a book about how to solve the Rubik's Cube and you know, never got the book published, but took a swing there. And then in college, had a t-shirt business that I ran for several years. And so I always enjoyed the hustle. And after a good stretch in corporate America and the pharmaceutical world, I had the good fortune of getting laid off in November of 2006. And I made the decision at that point after reading a great book called Art of the Start by Guy Kawasaki that it was time to scratch that entrepreneurial itch and go begin a journey that I have stayed on ever since. And Health Talker was the first company that I founded. It was a proper company. And uh, it was uh, a business that focused on a novel approach for pharmaceutical companies to tap into the power of word of mouth and leverage the trust that consumers have with each other to find novel ways to treat chronic health conditions and utilize prescription drugs to treat those conditions. And so it was an exciting space. I learned a lot and it was a great journey for five and a half years before I sold that business. Cool. So what do you think you learned at Health Talker? The team ended up growing to about 15 people and I was the only person that was focused on sales. And that felt like a heavy load to bear between both serving in that capacity as well as serving as leader, CEO of the company as well. So, you know, when I reflect back on those years, I think I could have thought bigger 
about how to scale the team, how to scale the business. So the point of the business was to help people feel like they were part of something larger than themselves. And I applied that same concept to the management of the company to help my employees feel like they too were part of something larger than themselves. So a particular practice that you put into place to help you do that or a story that would say, here's how I did that with our team. I aimed to create a real sense of purpose and alignment within my management team and my staff that they had an incredible opportunity to create impact among the people that we were serving, to give those people a voice. And I did my best to make sure that everyone in the organization felt like no matter their role was going to touch the people who were participating in our service to give them a real greater sense of purpose. And I think that that, coupled with complete transparency, were probably two elements to the success we had when I think back to what that business was like. A lot of times when people think about total transparency, the question comes up, how much of your financials did you share within the company? The question about financials was a tricky one because I did pride myself on transparency. And I would put a asterisk to that in that the only time I didn't reveal something was when I sold the business because I was really under terms where I couldn't describe or disclose to my staff that I was about to sell the business. But I've always loved being completely transparent. Super. So if we think about sort of the transition from health talker to purple carrot, I can think like, oh, great. So we went from pharmaceuticals to food as medicine. But what inspired you to go in that direction? You know, for 20 years, I was a huge proponent in the value of Western medicine as you know, a product that could cure most anything you've got. And at the encouragement of an ethically vegan friend of ours, my wife and I watched a documentary called Forks Over Knives in January of 2014. And it introduced me to this concept of food as medicine. As the story goes, that there's two physicians who both grow up independently on dairy farms in the Midwest. They come to the same conclusion that a diet highly characterized by meat and dairy consumption, which is the standard American diet, was the cause of most chronic health conditions in this country. And that a plant-based diet was the antidote to uh, those issues. And I was so fascinated with this concept, having, again, spent so many years in the pharmaceutical world, to now think about food as medicine instead of drugs as medicine. And at the end of the documentary, I turned to my wife and I said, that's what I'm going to do next. And she said, what are you talking about? I said, I'm going to start a plant-based meal kit company because more people need to know about the value of plant-based eating. And it was this lightning bolt moment. I barely knew about meal kits. I had just learned about Blue Apron and Plated, which were two big companies at the time. And I made a bet that meal kits were going to be a thing that people would always pay for convenience, but we were going to be the only 100% plant-based product. And the mission was to help people eat for their health and for the health of our planet, as there's a big environmental benefit to plant-based foods as compared to uh, animal proteins. So the shift from pharma to food was driven from watching a documentary. And I am so grateful that I had the chance to watch that movie because it led to the creation of literally hundreds of millions of plant-based meals that were purchased and consumed over the life of my time at Purple Carrot. And I feel really good about that. That's really, really awesome. So how did you evolve as a leader when you were at Purple Carrot? When I began Purple Carrot, it was just me, me in my garage. And I hired my first employee and it was an extremely small, scrappy team as we grew to a handful of us. 
And it was a very difficult business to to run. And when I look back at it, I think it's actually a terrible business model because there are very few things on which you can build every week because you're always introducing new recipes. You always need new ingredients. You always have to repackage new items that are highly perishable that need to be shipped in a box with gel packs and insulation, a lot of labor, a lot of expense, a lot of uncertainty, and customers are fickle and their taste buds are unique. And it's very difficult to thread that needle and commit to a subscription service when it doesn't always hit the mark. And the nature of a perishable food business is subject to a lot of challenges in that regard. So it's a very tough business to run. But as we had this small team, we started out in a regional capacity before starting to scale. And by the end, we got up to, we had about 75 full-time employees. And my nature as an entrepreneur is that I pride myself on being visionary and being able to take risks and think big and think conceptually about what could be and what those possibilities exist. And that's sort of a delusional quality as an entrepreneur that I pride myself on. But to translate that into structured thinking and clear communication and a level of of certainty about financials that I think in my early days I suffered from, and it underscored the importance of bringing on people who are smarter than me on any one particular discipline and surrounding myself with brilliant people who could cover up on the gaps that I had. And if my unique ability was to go raise capital, for example, for Purple Carrot, I was the only person that could go do that because I was the founder. And that was on my shoulders. But if I could bring on someone who was great at operations or great at finance or great at customer service, it was much better to bring those people along. I think one thing that stands out for me is not recognizing the role that people assigned to me perhaps more so than I assigned to myself as the CEO of the company. Because to me, it was still such a small homespun kind of company that was a relaxed place. And I might say something to someone in a transparent manner. And then that person walks away and said, well, Andy just said, we were going to think about doing this. I guess that must be what's happening. And so over the years, I, I really had to learn to filter myself and not be so comfortable sharing ideas because of the way people might interpret comments that I might make in an otherwise offhand way. So there was a learning curve that happened with that, a need for me to grow as a leader and to also focus on providing structured communication, structured thinking. And at some point, I realized I should just get out of the way and let other people step in and lead because my role, the company had reached a point where my impact could happen in a different way than managing some of the day-to-day operations of a highly logistically driven company. Right. So did you end up bringing in a COO or something? So I launched the company in the fall of 2014. And about a year and a half later, I brought on my dear friend, Brian Greenfield, who was my uh, right-hand person throughout the business, throughout the balance of the journey until we sold the business and we exited uh, several years later. Brian was great because we we really complemented each other so well. And he was very focused internally, where I was focused a bit more externally in seven years of working together daily never disagreed on anything. We always found a quick alignment. And so I give Brian a ton of credit for the success that Purple Carrot had because it took someone of his intellect and his capabilities that really helped us scale and achieve the growth and the margins. Yeah. And you're just giving a really good example of the way that early stage companies have their chaotic stage, which is all about, can we find enough people to buy what we're selling that we have enough money left over to run the company or raise money or whatever? So you were describing the typical first stage, which is that sort of high chaos, high visionary period of time where 
The real goal is we call it product market fit. But what that really means is we have enough customers to buy what we're making and we get enough money from all of that that we can continue to operate more or less. And that stage draws these lovely, like entrepreneurial, visionary people who are super comfortable with casual interactions, chaos, bespoke answers to things, making it up as we go. Then we get to that stage just before we scale where you need somebody like Brian. Correct. Who can bring in a little bit of systematic approach, some operational structure, some cadence, not too heavy. We go light structure, but that's that second stage that typically is thought of as systematizing, which then allows the scale. So that's right. For anyone listening, I think Andy just gave us the best possible description of the difference between the leaders that can lead those two stages. Well, thank you. I love building the plane in flight. And it's probably my favorite thing to do to create something from nothing and just figure it out as it's going. And I think Brian would be the first to admit he's not going to be the the visionary person who's going to start the company, but he comes in and plays such a critical role once you've got sort of your training wheels off and you're ready to really elevate. Yeah, it's mission critical. So for those of you listening, it's okay if you're the entrepreneurial type to bring in someone that does a little more structure than you do. It can be helpful. Was there anything surprising that you learned about yourself when you were leading Purple Carrot? What was surprising to me about my journey through Purple Carrot was how passionately I cared about the outcome. And it was just a different level of size, of scope, of scale, of investors, of customers, of eyeballs, of consumers, of press, of media. It just, when I think back to my prior company, Health Talker, it was just on such a smaller scale on a relative basis that was in almost its own little echo chamber. Purple Carrot was on the national stage for a lot of reasons from early partnerships that we had, different celebrities that got involved. The type of category it was with meal kits were very hot and very prominently featured in the media. And there was just a highly engaged audience. And so between that and the investors and the staff, I think that I just had to give every bit of myself to the business to address all that and balance it out with having a wife and four young children. That was difficult for sure. And it just, the surprising part, I guess, was just how incredibly soul-sucking and time-consuming it became. It it was also a joy. I mean, there was people used to ask about work-life balance. And I used to say, there's no such thing because I was so defined by Purple Carrot that my whole existence was that I was the CEO and founder of Purple Carrot. And I spend a bunch of hours every day doing that business while I also had a fabulous wife and four beautiful children and had that life around me. But so there was no balance because it was it was all one big thing. Everybody has the same 24 hours in the day. And I just had a disproportionate amount of time in my brain rented out to focus on the challenges and opportunities within Purple Carrot. Yeah. So what did you learn about yourself about with that struggle? I learned that I do have a great deal of grit and determination. And I say that with full humility, but I would say that I had my back up against the wall on countless occasions for a variety of reasons, whether it was financially driven with you know the challenge of raising capital, whether it was with employee issues, whether it was operational issues, whether it was macroeconomic issues, or even health issues that I dealt with. I assigned it to just a level of commitment to say, like, I'm not going to fail. And you got to just dig really deep and whatever it takes to find a way forward. That's what I learned about myself, an absolute willingness to lay it all out on the line there and not leave anything out for chance. And how did that impact the culture that you were building at the company? Do you think how did the employee base of the company react or respond? I don't think I 
showed that so much to the staff per se. I used to joke that I was like a duck, you know, that was sitting gliding along the water looking very calm, but underneath my legs were flapping like crazy because I never felt like it was going to be healthy to bring forth that energy and share all of that. I mean, Brian knew everything that was going on. Obviously, he was like my work spouse. But for the broader staff, I tried not to show that terribly clearly. And as much as I prided myself on transparency, the stress and the strain of running a business was not necessarily their burden to carry. It was mine. And I chose that. It's my privilege to have carried that weight, but it wouldn't be productive to put that on my staff and my partners there. That wasn't their job. It was mine. So I know right now, given the current economic climate, there are a lot of CEOs and companies struggling with the market's not what they thought it would be. Things aren't growing as fast. And they are struggling with just that. How much do I share? How much do I have to hold myself? Who can I trust with my full secret self? So thoughts on that for folks that might be listening? Look, when people look at the, the idea of starting a business or being an entrepreneur, I think it can be glorified a little bit. There are plenty of headlines of these different founders who've made a ton of money or had great products that have been wildly successful by various measures that it sounds so cool. And as you get into it, you realize that when you're the founder or CEO of a company, it can be very lonely at times. And having, in my case, Brian there as my right-hand person who I could confide and be completely transparent and open about everything that was going on, that was a great relief. I mean, I talked to my wife all the time about these different things, but after some point in time, she doesn't want to hear about that much anymore. And there's only so much value she can add other than empathy, which she gave me in plentifully uh, over the years. And I'm so grateful for that. But it was different to have someone who's really in the weeds on it and could really relate. And so I had that right-hand person in, in Brian, and that was incredibly important uh, to have that outlet because I do believe that staff members of a team or team members in whatever leadership roles they are, there's this expression that I heard many years ago that if the trumpeter sounds an uncertain note, few will heed the call. Ooh. <laughs> so I'll say it again. If the trumpeter sounds an uncertain note, few will heed the call. And I think that speaks to the importance of leadership, of showing up, even when you might be afraid, even then when you're unsure, to communicate with confidence and clarity, because that's what people need to rally around. And so our focus was, we were running a mission-driven business. I set a North Star that we knew, everybody knew why we were doing what we were doing. And it was about creating an environment for people to learn how to eat plant-based foods for their health and the health of our environment and to eat more plants. And that was our North Star. It was simple and it was focused and everybody could get their head around that. And if I would then revealed worries about X, Y, or Z, that was just going to distract them from what they needed to be doing in that moment. And so there's a burden and an opportunity uh, to be a founder, to be an entrepreneur. And it's not for everybody. And for better or worse, it's what I've chosen and what I feel most fueled by. And I'm grateful when people want to join onto my vision of what I think is possible to really bend reality to the way I, I want it to be, which is oftentimes what it takes as an entrepreneur. Yeah, that's great. So now you've got a new organization you've started called Brightly. And why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Thank you. I'm really excited about Brightly. This is my third company, and it's the one that I think has the potential to be the most impactful uh, in its own right. Brightly is a mission-driven organization that works with food rescue organizations to help monetize all of the food that they go out and rescue every week. And these nonprofit organizations are really out there doing God's work to help 
address food insecurity in their communities to rescue or recover food that may otherwise go to a landfill. And had that food ended up in a landfill, it would release toxic methane gas into our atmosphere. There is a methodology that's going to come out from a third-party organization called VERA. And VERA is a world-renowned and widely respected organization that produces methodologies that allows for the creation of what are called carbon credits. Mm. And so what we'll be doing is following that methodology that lays out how we, Brightly, can work with food rescue organizations to quantify the methane emissions that they help avoid by diverting food away from a landfill and getting it to feed people who are hungry. And they're not getting paid for the food that they rescue right now. They just are out there doing what they do as a nonprofit, and they rely on government grants, donations to support their operations. So what we're going to be able to do is work with them to create high-integrity carbon offset credits by following this methodology, and then in turn, find corporate buyers who have ESG goals to reduce their environmental footprint by a certain time frame. And so the carbon credits that we'll sell to them, the Brightly carbon credit, will have this co-benefit of being minted in the United States and addressing climate change and addressing food insecurity. Because when we take the revenue from the sale of those offsets, we're going to give a majority of that revenue back to the food rescue organization, which allows them to rescue even more food and feed even more people. So I'm hearing that very big picture vision, loud and clear. And it's very exciting. So just thinking about, you know, what you learned at Purple Carrot and what you learned previously, what are you bringing into the founding of Brightly? What are you doing differently this time as a leader? It's a great question. I'm really drawn to the mission. And so I'm carrying that forward, certainly from what we had at Purple Carrot. I am really drawn to the simplicity of the operations. I swore to my wife a few years ago, I'd never do another startup because it just takes so much labor and emotional labor and toll. But this business is relatively simple in terms of its execution as a, it's a two-sided marketplace connecting food rescue organizations and corporate buyers. And yeah, there's some science and operational elements involved, but it's very clean and easy to run once we find the supply and demand side of that marketplace. That as compared to what I used to do at Purple Carrot feels like a spa day because <laughs> it's so much, it's so much more elegant. I have a much smaller team right now. There's only five of us that are focused on what uh, we're building because it's not a labor-intensive business. It's not an operational-intensive business. I continue to focus on transparency. I continue to focus on making people feel like they're a part of something larger than themselves, that there's great buy-in and involvement, and there's a clear alignment to our mission for what it is that we're trying to do for the good we're trying to do in the world to both do well and do good at the same time. Singing my song. So, anything else, any challenges you foresee that might require you to tackle some new skill set? What's the next level of your executive journey, do you think? We've got a long way to go with Brightly, and we're really at the top of the first inning, probably, as you, know, you might say in baseball language, as we're just getting started. But for me, I, I hope to continue to inspire my colleagues to be their best selves, to make an impact with the food rescue organizations who will rely on us to provide this service to them and to support the organizations who are forward thinking in nature, who are in a voluntary market right now to try to address their own ESG goals. And so I will look back on this with pride and success if I'm able to make those things happen. That leads to a lot fewer people going hungry every day because the food rescue organizations will be able to do even more work thanks to the revenue we'll be able to share with them 
So that really inspires me, makes me feel great. I think it sets a nice tone for my children uh, to look at what I'm doing to give back and to try to help alter the trajectory of the planet that they're going to inherit. And uh, it feels very mission aligned and mission driven. Startups are hard. And so at least if you can do something that feels like it's going to make a difference in the world, it's a lot easier to get up every day and fight the good fight. And I think in a mission-driven organization, of course, that's one of the ways that you keep people inspired and enthusiastic. Are there other seeds that you plant when the company is so small for the culture that you want later? And how do you do that? I think you do that by showing up in the way you want other people to show up. And I pride myself on having an exceptionally strong work ethic. And I'm a big sports fan, and I'd always admire when they would talk about some leader on the team that he might be the first guy in the stadium in the morning and the last guy to leave at night. I sort of think of myself a lot of times as that individual because I just care so much about it. And while I don't necessarily want other people to work as hard as I work, I do want people to understand that there's a lot on the line here. This is a business and we have a responsibility to show up and be our best selves, but that you've also got to find some balance and, and space to, to be your best self and that it can't just be constant work. And so Creating a level of humanity, creating a level of humility and sharing transparently about the things that are going on and that people understand the various uh, elements of people's lives that we're not so one-dimensional as a worker, but there's a lot more to all of us than may meet the eye. And uh, eager to facilitate connection among our staff that we all feel a great sense of kinship and uh, you know, a collaborative spirit as a team, because that's really what holds it together. Yeah, that's great. And then as you establish that kind of tone, as you go out to recruit and hire more people, of course, you look for people that you think may not share exactly the same ways of thinking, but share at least those core values. That's right. And as those people, as if and as we hire more people, it's going to be pretty obvious in what the cultural norms are that we've set about making meaning, about doing something with purpose that it's not just chasing a dollar, but it's really trying to create a difference in the world that we can all be proud of. Delicious. All right. So I love to go behind the scenes on this podcast. So I really like that old open the kimono statement, which I don't really know if that's even appropriate to say, but let's get more <laughs> to the heart of what it means to you being human as a leader. And not many things test a person like a major crisis. So I know a few years ago you had one, that you almost didn't survive literally. And I wonder if you might share that story and how it's changed you as a leader. Sure. So what you're touching on there is a really dire situation that I lived through, thankfully. When back in December of 2018, I had uh, surgery for Crohn's disease, which is something that I've been diagnosed with and live with for the last 12 years or so. And this was my second surgery and I, I wasn't really that worried about it. I was deep in the action of, of selling my company. I was in advanced stages of diligence and there was a lot of stuff going on and it was just like, okay, I got to stop and do this for two weeks. And it was intended to happen over sort of the Christmas break to minimize the impact on work because this was everything I was focused on other than my family. And I, uh, I had a surgery that went badly and uh, I was home over that Christmas break after being in the hospital for five days, which was standard. And my wife was busy with one of our children who had uh, had this thing in his neck. So she wasn't very mentally present, sadly, at that moment. And I was home with three kids by myself. And I remember feeling terribly. And I, I went down to the hospital, thankfully, to get an, what I thought was going to be an iron infusion. And I got down there and I looked terrible. And they said, you don't look very good. <laughs> I said, I don't feel very good. 
And I said, I'm just here for my iron. I just really need this iron infusion. And they said, I don't think so, kid. You know, this is not looking good. And uh, I ended up going septic. And uh, after about, you know, 10 or 12 hours in the ER, they had me overnight, thankfully. And I woke up at like three in the morning and I couldn't breathe. And uh, it went south pretty fast. And I think, thankfully, I was in the hospital. I think if I'd been home, I'm I'm sure I would have died and I wouldn't have made it. But because I was in the hospital, I was in a position to get incredible care. But I was pretty close to the edge. I think a lot of people thought I was going to die. And I was in a coma for several days. And I woke up, my wife came and kissed me on the cheek and said, Happy New Year. I was like, Happy New Year. And she's like, yeah, it's January 2nd. And I'd gone into the hospital, I think on December 28th. So I was awfully confused. And it was uh, an extremely traumatic situation. I mean, I, I joke about it a little bit here, but it was it was really soul sucking and scary, downright scary. And, and I thought, my God, I've been grinding it out for all these years, only to find out that I almost died and left my family. And, you know, for what? And that's when I swore off startups to my wife. I said, um, when I was finally conscious in the place I could communicate, then I said I'd never do this again because I was I was so close to losing it all. And, you know, it took me several months. I was in the hospital for 13 days and I, I came out and I, was a, I really was a different person. And the PTSD that I had from waking up with a trach tube in my throat and feeling this sense of, of nearly dying, it, it really took a while. Um, I spent a year in therapy over it, and it was it was really hard to not cry at almost the drop of a hat. Like I'd look at one of my kids, and I would just burst into tears. It was just so sad to to sort of get beyond it. And once I got beyond it, which I believe I've mostly done, it's a great reminder to stay very present and show up with gratitude every day and appreciate what we have because it is all so fragile, and not to walk around with with a sense of imminent death, you know, per se, but it is really fragile and you can't take things for granted. And I'm not always great at staying present anymore. And we're all distracted by our cell phones and messages and things that seem important. But the reality is, is that there are very few things that will matter when you're pressed up against it like that. And it informs certainly how I show up in the world today. You know, I meditate every single day. That was a big improvement, I think, coming out of that, just to create a sense of mindfulness and and sense of purpose and to remind you to sort of take a step back and breathe for 10 minutes every day. I try to be even more tolerant with my children uh, whenever I can be, but our kids, so they're, they're great at you know, getting the best of us at times, but... They certainly know which buttons to push in their parents. If they could only get paid for pressing buttons, they'd be very wealthy. But, <laughs> you know, it was definitely a life-changing experience, as you could imagine. And I think underscores the importance of showing up with humility and recognizing how fragile the world is and the importance of being kind and generous to people and always paying it forward because you never know when you'll get other chances like that. And so I wouldn't wish that journey on anybody. And uh, for better or worse, I lived through it. And I hope I'm a better person on the other side for it. I imagine nobody could go through an experience like that without it being profoundly changing. Yeah. So thank you yeah, for sharing the story. Don't, don't go welcome. pursue don't, don't that way it. of... <laughs> Yeah. Don't try this at home. I wouldn't dream of it. So one more kind of open the kimono question. Sure. What do you think is the most difficult choice you've had to make in terms of managing the people in your organization? And and maybe what did you learn from that? There's not one thing that's going to stand out, but I think on the arc of management, since I started running my own businesses in 2007, the challenge is when you become connected to people emotionally 
and you care about them as a human being and you care about them as a friend or think of them as friends. And if you need to say goodbye to them because they're no longer a fit in your organization, to be able to separate that out and realize that at the end of the day, it is a business and you're running a business and that it's not as much as there's, I think, great joy to incorporating and infusing personal connections and friendships and deep friendships that can come from the amount of time people spend together working with each other, that especially once you take outside capital and there's an expectation of an exit, you're now really working for somebody else. As much as I can say, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm a self-starter. Once you begin taking outside capital, you really have other people that you have to report to and answer to. And that requires you to run the business as a business. And I always try to infuse it with great humility and fun and a human spirit. But at the end of the day, I think the hard part is when you become close to people and you have to either say goodbye to them or if there's, they're not the right fit, uh, that, that is what it takes sometimes. Yeah. That is challenging. And I know, especially people talk often about how hard it is to give feedback on how people should improve, especially when they're friendly. They feel like friends. It can feel harder. But hopefully that trust allows the conversations to happen. You know, I think it's also a great reminder to not have, you know, like an annual review. <laughs> I, like this always seems very odd and archaic to me to think that you need to wait for either the end of a quarter, end of a, a year, instead of very active, open communication and dialogue, then there shouldn't be any surprises. And I do think that early managers or young managers should not hide behind the potential of waiting until some moment to give feedback. But the more open and constructive feedback you can offer, everybody is better for it. Yeah, definitely true. So you kind of did a nice segue to my next question for you, which is if you could go back to 2007 and talk to yourself, what would you want to tell yourself about what you were about to get into? <laughs> well, I know you don't I, want to say <laughs> how hard it's going to be because you might not do it, but what would you want to say? Yeah, I would want to say to myself, don't give up, keep going, and it will get tough, but, but you've got this. I'm really proud of what I built with Health Talker and Purple Carrot, but I think if I would do it again, I, I think I could go even bigger, actually. And I don't think I ever played it safe because I always sort of went in a different direction in an alternative way. Nobody was doing word of mouth marketing when I started doing word of mouth marketing for pharma. Nobody was doing a plant-based meal kit when there was meal kits out there. So I was always trying to sort of go zig where someone was zagging. But if I did it again, I could think bigger. And I would remind myself the importance of, they say on the airplane, put your oxygen mask on first before helping others. Mm -hmm. I was so worried about my wife and children and all my employees and my investors that they all took priority over me and my own health, which was you know, partly what led to that near-death experience in a lot of ways, um, because I'm sure the stress that I was internalizing wasn't helpful to my Crohn's disease, which necessitated the additional surgery. So I think founders, entrepreneurs, it's a big health toll that it can take because you're so committed to the outcome and you feel that pressure, you feel that sense of responsibility to your staff, to your investors, to your family, to yourself, that it's easy to put those things away and say, I'll, I'll get to me when I've got the time to get to me. And you just may not have, you may not have time. I think that's such a powerful message, Andy, for you to share with our listeners. So I do very much appreciate that and we'll echo it. Hope you're paying attention out there, folks, to take care of yourself. Put your oxygen mask on first. So just as we wrap up, I titled the podcast To Lead as Human. And I'm just curious what that means to you as a leader. I think that people may assign superhuman qualities to leaders and think they've got something really special 
and that's why they're leading. And I think in many ways, leadership is a choice. And leadership is not necessarily for everybody. But if you choose to be a leader, then you have to lead. And that is what you're signing up for. That's what you're taking. But it's also okay to be vulnerable, to be human, to reveal your shortcomings, to ask for help where you need it, and lean into the greatness that you possess and do more of that and less of everything else and surround yourself with other people to make you an even better leader, which makes the rest of the team even better because now you've built an organization that's, that's so optimized around your vision as a leader and your capabilities as a leader without creating shortcomings for the gaps that we all have in our own ways. So making people understand like, yeah, we are all human and I'm far from perfect. And you operate and make decisions with the information you have in front of you at that time. But it doesn't mean you're always going to get it right. And I think when people understand that you're acting with their best intentions at heart, hopefully everyone comes out feeling there's a sense of cohesion, a sense of purpose, and a togetherness that you as a leader sign up to be the leader. You can be human. You can make mistakes. You can apologize for them. You can keep doing and showing up for the next day. And if you've earned that trust and respect and admiration from your staff, hopefully those people help you lead even better the next day. I can't think of a better wrap up to the conversation than that. So you certainly picked up from the title what I had hoped would be picked up. And I appreciate your putting it into your own words. Any last thought you want to share? No, I'm just, I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk about this stuff. I'm grateful for having the journey that I've been on and I'm excited to keep taking it forward. And I'm excited to hear more about Brightly and how it unfolds. So I'll be checking in with you as we go down the road. Well, special thank you for Andy Levitt for this really wonderful, deep, rich conversation today. Andy, if folks want to find out more about you or they want to keep up with what you're doing, what's the best place for them to kind of, I guess, stalk you, for lack of a better word? Yeah, they can. They Metaphorically can find speaking on, uh, only. Of course, of course. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Andy Levitt, and my company is Brightly, and our URL is justbrightly.com. J-U-S-T-Brightly.com. Perfect. And it's Levitt, L-E-V-I-T-T? Correct. Yep. L-E-V-I-T-T. And uh, yeah, stalk away. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And it's been a delight. Likewise, Sharon. Thank you so much. Please stay with us for a moment and I'll share some takeaways from my conversation with Andy and coaching tips to help you up-level your own leadership starting right away. Hi, this is Sharon. I'm popping in just before the takeaways to remind you that as an executive coach, I'm always looking to support new clients. If you or someone you know might be looking for an executive coach, head over to my website, leadinglarge.com, and you can book a complimentary appointment with me. In the first 25 minutes, we'll be able to identify a challenge you're facing and talk about whether I'm the right fit to work with you. I look forward to hearing from you. So listening to Andy reflect on the arc of his leadership journey today, I heard several topics that I'd love for you to think about for your own leadership. The first is, how do you live your values? And in specific, Andy talked about his value of transparency. So while he generally demonstrated this particular value by being very open with his team 
even about some financial information, he also had to learn when and how to comfortably keep some information from even his more senior managers without feeling self-judging or hypocritical. Every leader should take the time to think through their own most important values and how you will demonstrate them in your own actions. In Andy's case, he had to do a little bit better self-management, and that's something we can all get better at. A second key takeaway for me is that when you are the CEO or really any C-level role, the people in your organization tend to project onto you whatever they might believe about leaders and authority figures, and it might not match your self-image. This could be surprising. In Andy's case, he came to realize that as he was just naturally sharing his ideas and thoughts with people very openly, some folks could misinterpret his musings as a new directive while it was really just in process. Becoming aware of this helped Andy to edit himself in certain situations to only sharing broadly the messages that he believed would help his team members keep focused on their top priorities. And certainly making sure you have a trusted partner like Andy's colleague Brian, or like an executive coach, ensures that you have someone with whom you can be completely open. This will give you not only good thought partnership, but it can also help you avoid the risk of being alone with your, let's just call them obsessive thoughts. It's just great to get those out in the open, your fears, your worries, whatever, and that helps you to think more clearly. I hope that you'll agree with me that the most powerful reminder, though, was Andy's take on a challenge that pretty much all the entrepreneurs I know face, making sure that they take care of themselves so they can be effective in their leadership. As Andy sums up his own view of what it means to him to be a fully human leader, it's clear to me, and I hope it's clear to you, that taking good care of himself is the prerequisite to being able to do all those other things that he values. As always, we like to share a how to put this into practice tip from every episode. So today, here's my invitation to you. Do an audit of your own methods of self-care. From having a totally confidential thought partner to getting yourself to the doctor when you need to, who are your trusted partners? And what do you do to ensure that you keep your own instrument, your body and mind, finely tuned? Being at the top can be lonely and it can definitely take a toll on your health. So what new source of support will you add in the coming week that will help you better fulfill your obligations as a leader. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this has been To Lead as Human. You can find out more about me at leadinglarge.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G large.com. To Lead as Human is part of the Miracy FM podcast network which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business and Making It. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Andrew Chapman assembled the episode. Danny Eaney is our executive producer, and post-production is provided by Post Office Sound. So you don't miss upcoming episodes. Please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you learned something useful today, take a minute to leave us a starred review and tell your colleagues about us. The more leaders we can reach, the better for all of us. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time on To Lead as Human.
Miracy. I'm Molly Mahoney. I'm Danny Eney. I'm Virginia Mooskies. I'm Melinda Cohen. I'm Dave Lacani. I'm Michael Port, and you're listening to Making, Making it. it. You would think that when you hit the New York Times list or the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, you would feel like you made it. For me, it never has. I think making it can mean whatever you want it to mean for you. Making it is about having time to spend as I want to spend it. Making it really is about being free to live according to your own genuine values and priorities. It's about acceptance. Not only like making money, but make a difference. Make a contribution. contribution. Like feeling like I'm making a difference to someone. And I don't think making it is a one and done. I think it's an ebb and flow spiral type of pattern. Making it to me really means being able to bring your whole self to the table. It's really a choice that you make every day. Because the truth is that you do not really know what you're doing until you get started doing it. I'd say that the first seven, maybe eight years was like pushing a boulder up the hill. If there's anything that I could say to my younger self, I would say, really? Like, for real, for real? Trust. I would tell myself no shortcuts. No shortcuts. The path is always in front of you, even if it's not clear. The key is to keep moving forward. Everything requires work and effort, no matter how much you love it. You've got to find something that you love, something that you enjoy, so that your work is not a labor, it's not a chore. Don't compare yourself to others. But recognize that if you see someone else doing something that is of interest to you, you can do it also. I had this sensation of, I kind of felt like the walls were shaking and I just felt like, that's what I've been doing all this time. That's who I am. In that moment, I knew who they were. I knew the burdens and distractions and I knew full potential. And then I ended up ultimately in the ultimate Frisbee Hall of Fame as a Johnny Appleseed for taking the sport out to the world. And so I just said to myself, you have to give this a try. If you don't give it a try, you'll spend the rest of your life wondering if you could have done it. The water is always changing and your comfort with that doesn't come from knowing that there is no uncertainty coming. It comes from trusting in your competence to handle that. I like to say, don't emulate, elevate. That's how you're going to make it. Making It is a weekly podcast brought to you by our team at Miracy. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most anywhere else podcasts are found.